right? Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth that you are so much kinder than we could think you are. Sometimes kindness of God is forgotten. May we not forget it. It's the kindness of you that has brought us to this place to worship, to hear this gorgeous music, to be among like-minded women. It's beautiful. Thank you for your kindness. Be with us this morning. May we each take away something that we can apply to our lives this week to be more like you. We love you, Lord. Amen. Hello. I have two announcements for you. The first is... Thursday night, don't miss it, Women's Night of Worship. I heard a woohoo in the crowd. All right, it's exciting. Last year we packed this place, so we've opened up two, two times on Thursday. It's 5 o'clock and 7.30, so bring your friends, bring your neighbors, bring your children, bring your grandmothers, bring women who look like they could use a bit of encouragement right? You each know somebody who fits that description. It may be yourself. So make sure you come on Thursday. It'll be beautiful. Lisa, we love her. She's leading the music. It's stunning as always. So please join us. The other thing is next week, a week from today, we will be celebrating Christmas at the river. So we'll be having a fellowship time. Please come. You'll love it. Um, And Our tables will be full with beautiful things that you have created and that you've purchased and that you've brought to share with us. So please um, join us next week for fellowship where we're talking all about in small groups what God is teaching us and it will be encouraging. So join us for that. All right. Well, welcome. I'm Rhonda Burchard. I partner with Marianne Teaching at the River, and I'm so glad to be here. I have so much to share with you about today's passage that I believe God has knit in my heart, so I can hardly wait. So let's begin. Uh, we're in James 3, 13 through 18. This is lesson number eight. I'm going to start by reading our entire passage. So go ahead, take out your Bibles, look on the screen, do what you need to do to get ready to jump in. Please note that James begins with a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? By their good conduct, let them show their works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There is so much good stuff packed in these verses. Where should we begin? Well, let's begin with James' opening question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, really, this is a rhetorical question because James has already provided us with the answer earlier in his letter. Anybody remember? 
James is using the rhetorical question to light up our brains and remind us of the answer we already know. We find it in James 1.5, which we looked at a few weeks ago. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So even though we're now in chapter 3, James wants us to remember, if we need wisdom, we should ask for it from God. So here's our question. Who is wise and understanding among you? And here's our answer. The one who asks God for wisdom. James is reminding us we already know the answer and he wants us to put it into practice. He wants us to ask God for wisdom. So let's try a little Q&A, a little question and answer. I'm going to ask the question and I'd like you to respond out loud with the answer on the screen. Okay, make sense? All right. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among you? Nice job. Wisdom is given to the one who asks God for wisdom. James wants us to remember our truth. God gives wisdom to those who ask. God gives wisdom to those who ask. Wisdom is a key word in the book of James. In fact, it is a key word in the entire Bible. Remember, the Bible is one grand story from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And if we were to do a word search, we would find the word wisdom is used 216 times in the Bible. That's a lot. So now maybe you're curious. You might ask, is the word wise in other parts of Scripture? Good question. Yes, it is. It is used 177 times in the Bible. So when we add the numbers together of wisdom and wise, we get 393, nearly 400 times in the Bible, we hear of wisdom and people that are wise. Because wisdom and people that are wise are very important themes in the Bible. James is asking us to pay attention. When we hear the words wisdom and wise, James wants us to perk up our ears and make some connections because wisdom and being wise are very important themes in the Bible. And since it's an important theme, let's get a definition. The definition of wisdom is the capacity to understand and act with skillful discernment. The capacity to understand and act with skillful discernment. I really like that definition. Now, when the books of the Bible were written, people didn't have their own personal copy of the Bible or on their cell phones like we do today. Instead, it was read to them when they gathered in a group. It was spoken out loud repeatedly. So the authors of the Bible had the expectation that when people heard a passage of Scripture, over time, they would remember it. Then they would take that knowledge and use it as a base for the next piece of information that they heard. In that way, they were creating building blocks of understanding of the Bible and of God because the Bible is one complete 
story. Anyone here ever heard of the Bible Project? For those of you that have, I'm so glad because it is a fantastic tool. For those of you that haven't, I'm so glad to be able to introduce it to you, thebibleproject.com. It combines really accessible and smart Bible teaching in a wonderfully engaging artistic way. It takes some really complicated biblical themes and makes them easy to understand. I encourage you to check it out if you haven't before. It can help you talk about the Bible with others, friends, husbands, children, family, or you can use it in your own learning. Just a note, this site has a special series for Advent that you might want to check out, thebibleproject.com. Tim Mackey is one of the founders of the Bible Project. Now, some of you know I graduated from seminary in April of this year, and let's just say you know you're a geek when the semester immediately following your graduation, you take your very first audit. That would be me. And this past summer, I had the total blessing, the total gift of taking a class from Tim Mackey. He's such a gifted teacher, and his enthusiasm is wonderful. I can't even tell you the number of times he said to us, Dudes, the Hebrew Bible, it's so amazing. He is fantastic. I loved it. One of the things he really hones in on is the idea that words in the Bible are intended to take you to other places in the Bible that use the same words. He calls them hyperlinks. Now, many of us are familiar with the term hyperlink because of websites on the internet. A hyperlink connects one document or file on the internet with another one. Typically, you activate it by clicking on the highlighted word or image on the screen. You have all done this. When you registered for the river, you went to the River West website, you read about our Bible study, you said, I want to register for that. And so you clicked on the word register. That is a hyperlink taking you directly to the registration form. We see them all the time on the internet, web pages, etc. So Tim Mackey of the Bible Project says words in the Bible are also like hyperlinks. He makes a really strong case that when a significant word, situation, or theme is first introduced in the Bible, every time from then on when we hear that same significant word, theme, or situation repeated, we should reference in our minds the first time that word or concept was introduced. He believes this is how the writers of the Bible intended us to read the Bible. So we've already seen that the word wise is used 177 times. If we're going to follow this thinking, we should look and see when was the first time the word wise is used in the Bible. Are you with me? Because if wisdom and being wise are important themes in the Bible— which they are, it would be good to ask, when is wisdom or being wise first introduced? So I went looking, and this is what I found. But first of all, you need to buckle your seatbelts because it's really cool. And it puts the Bible's emphasis and importance on wisdom and being wise into perspective. Are you ready? Okay. The first use of the word wise in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at it. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was conveniently standing right next to her and he ate. Somehow we forget sometimes that Adam was right there. Did you see that? The tree was to be desired to make one wise. This is the first time the word wise appears in the Bible. Okay, let me just say this. The first three chapters of Genesis is where the entire story of the Bible is set up. So if we have a word or theme that takes us back to the first three chapters of Genesis, we need to sit up and take notice. This is an important connection in our understanding of wisdom. This is the story of Adam and Eve, and we know the serpent as Satan. Later this year, after studying James, we'll be studying First and Second Peter. Peter warns us this way about our enemy, Satan. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Such an intense and vivid description. But you see, Satan doesn't want to just trick Adam and Eve. He wants to devour them. And he wants to devour you. And he wants to devour me. And he wants to devour those that we love. The question is, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Who are you hearing? Who is speaking into your life? Sisters, the battle for who we will seek for wisdom is significant, and it begins right here. Let's look again at James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve didn't ask God for wisdom because he would have given it to them without finding fault if they had asked. But instead, they chose for themselves. God had laid out a plan. He had given them his own wisdom directly, but they decided to make themselves wise with their own plan. Saying, in effect, thanks God, but we got this. And so there it is, the Garden of Eden, the fall of mankind, And the subject of that first sin, wisdom. Wisdom. Do you see how important wisdom is? We see very clearly from the Adam and Eve story, there are two sources of wisdom. God's wisdom and the serpent or Satan's wisdom. Adam and Eve were given the choice of who they were going to listen to, just like we are given the choice of who we are going to listen to. So who are you listening to? Or another way to ask is, whose wisdom are you listening to?
Adam and Eve made their own decision between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of Satan. They chose not to follow God's wisdom. They chose their own path of wisdom, which is really Satan's wisdom. Sometimes we think that Adam, the Adam and Eve story, we get caught up with, well, what kind of fruit was it? Was it an apple? <laughs> what could the tree look like? But it really isn't about the tree. It's really not about the fruit. The story is really about who we are listening to and who we are trusting. So I ask you, whose wisdom are you listening to? My favorite professor at seminary says sin really comes down to this question. Am I going to trust God? Am I going to trust God? What about you? Are you going to trust God? Are you? Are you going to trust God and what he says, his wisdom? Or are you going to choose another source of wisdom? Because really, that is the ultimate question. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And if you're not going to trust God, then who are you going to trust to give you guidance, your wisdom for life? Because we all need wisdom. We all need guidance. The Bible shows us nearly 400 times the importance of wisdom and people that are wise. And the truth is, we seek wisdom from the one we trust. We seek wisdom from the one we trust. So who do you trust? Let's go back to this week's passage. It turns out James is asking us one of the biggest questions of the entire Bible. Who do we trust to give us wisdom? He is reminding us of what we saw with Adam and Eve, that there are two types of wisdom, God's wisdom and Satan's wisdom. Let's read our passage again with our hyperlink, but this time from the Garden of Eden to the passage in James. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false in the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Demonic means of the devil or Satan. So we see clearly in this passage, James is describing two types of wisdom, God's wisdom and Satan's wisdom, just as we saw in Genesis 3. I've divided the two types of wisdom according to their attributes. There they are. Wisdom from God, understanding, good conduct, meekness, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Wisdom from Satan, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, false to the truth, earthly, unspiritual, demonic, disorder, every vile practice. Where we get our wisdom from matters. So whose wisdom are you seeking? Remember our truth, we seek wisdom from the one we trust. 
We seek wisdom from the one we trust. So the natural question is, who is your source of wisdom? Who is your source of wisdom? I looked this up, and in June of 2019, it was estimated there were more than 750,000 podcasts on the internet with over three, excuse me, 30 million episodes. It's a lot of wisdom. Keeping in mind, wisdom, whether God's wisdom or Satan's wisdom, moves our thinking in a certain direction. So it's worth asking regularly, what is your source of wisdom? Let's go back to the passage we looked at in Genesis. I think there is something else that is interesting to note. Look at what Satan asked Eve. The serpent or Satan said to the woman, did God actually say? Satan is asking Eve, what did God actually say? Satan is asking to see, do Adam and Eve even know what God said? That's probably a good question for us too. Do we know what God has said? Are we actually in the Bible looking to see what God has said? Would it surprise you to know that Jesus asked the same question that Satan asks, but just in a different way? We find it in Luke 10, 26. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Notice he didn't ask about their favorite teacher, author, or podcast. He asked about scripture. I think it's so fascinating that both Satan and Jesus ask basically the same question. What does God say about this topic? Jesus asked, what does the law say? The law refers to what we would call today the Old Testament. It was their scriptures. So it is the same as Jesus asking us today, well, what does the Bible say? He might look at us and ask, do we know what the Bible says about the issues that are important to us? The issues that rile us up? The issues that make us all upset inside? The issue that we hear a lot of people talking about in a lot of different ways, saying, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. Do we know? Do we know what the Bible says? The truth is, the first step in seeking God's wisdom is to read and study the Bible. The first step in seeking God's wisdom is to read and study the Bible. It feels significant to me that both Satan and Jesus ask the same question. What does God say? I'm finding my work as a chaplain in the hospital that so many people who call themselves Christian don't know the Bible. They're not asking, what does God say about this? Many are just choosing for themselves what seems good to them. I'm finding that often people who self-identify as Christians are, in a sense, choosing from a buffet line of faith. They like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Not too much of that, though, because that feels like too much. (laughs) That feels like it's too out there. Just a bit, though. In fact, in the last few months, I have seen multiple times 
several people who self-identify as Christian but also believe in reincarnation. In the Bible, those two just don't go together. The only way they go together is if you're picking and choosing from the Bible what you want to believe and then adding other outside ideas, creating your own package of faith, choosing from the buffet line of faith, or actually not using the Bible all at all and just identifying as Christian because somehow you like the idea of Jesus. But I think it's so interesting to note, it's Jesus who asks, what does the Bible say? How do you read it? Isaiah 5.21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe is an expression of sadness and lament. It's It's not an expression of judgment. It's an expression of heartbreak. Isaiah says, it is not going to go well for you if you are creating your own wisdom, your own version of faith. Be careful about being wise in your own eyes. Be careful about putting your faith together in the faith buffet line. As Adam and Eve learned, it ends in sadness. I ask you again, what is your source of wisdom? In Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 20, we read these words. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Lord is telling us we need to know his word. Because the truth is the first step in seeking God's wisdom is to read and study the Bible. Let's go back to our passage in James. This is how our passage ends in verses 17 through 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You noted that I highlighted the repeated use of the word peace. He mentions the word peace three times in two verses. That's another truth. God's wisdom leads to peace. James wants us to understand that God's wisdom leads to peace. Doesn't that sound good? The older I get, the more I desire peace. Peace in my home. Peace in my heart. Peace in relationships. A very common definition of peace is the absence of conflict. I had a professor who said, while this is the most common definition, it is not really a complete biblical definition of the word peace. 
He went on to describe a small garden bed in your backyard that has a few weeds. Now let's say you take care of your few weeds by dumping an entire wheelbarrow full of weed killer on your small garden bed. There are no longer any weeds. There's no conflict in your garden bed. So by the world's definition, this is peace. But there's nothing good in the soil anymore. Yes, there's no conflict, but there's no longer anything good, nothing to work with. There's no potential for life. There are no nutrients. There are no worms. There is no healthy soil, right? My professor gave another definition for the word peace rather than the absence of conflict. It is a definition that I love. Peace is where good can grow. Peace is where good can grow. This goes along with the Old Testament concept you may have heard of, shalom, which means completeness or soundness or wholeness, where good can grow. God's wisdom leads you to a place where good can grow in your life. Do you want good to grow in your life? I do. God's wisdom leads to peace. Look specifically at verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. People who make peace. Look closely. Peace is actually made or sown. Peace is actually intentional. Let me tell you a story, a true story from my own life. My husband and I have been married for 30 years. Crazy. Amazing. Some of you work with him at Foster Parent Night Out, and you tell me he's so great, and I say, I know. Not perfect, but amazing. As some of you know, I have a very special relationship with my mother-in-law, but it was not always so. You see, I actually grew up in a very dysfunctional home. In fact, I grew up in a home where my mom was emotionally abused. But as a child, you don't know what you don't know, right? So when I got married in my early 20s, I still didn't know what I grew up in. And on my wedding day, no joke, on my wedding day, I was told by a person I then trusted that I needed to be careful because my future mother-in-law was going to try and run my life. True story. So I heeded this warning and I kept my mother-in-law at a distance for 10 years. But my mother-in-law believed in the power of making peace. And so she kept praying, and she kept reaching out to me in peace, even though her efforts were not reciprocated. I wasn't intentionally unkind, but I was thinking more of the absence of conflict rather than where good can grow. They're very different. Suffice it to say, my life at the 10-year marriage mark was blowing up with infertility, cancer, and frequent moving, and my attempts at handling life were no longer working. So my beliefs started breaking down, including the idea that my mother-in-law was trying to run my life, 
because she kept reaching out to me in peace the entire time so that we could have a relationship where good could grow. And I finally started to trust her in the peacemaking process. Fast forward to today, we have now had a very sweet relationship for the last 20 years. So much so that last year when my father-in-law died, they were in Europe on vacation, and it was me, the daughter-in-law, who flew to Europe to be with her. And when I walked into that hotel, and there she was all by herself, she said to me, there is no one I would rather have here than you. That's creating a space where good can grow. I wish I could tell you that that relationship was due to my peacemaking efforts, but it is not. It is not. This was before I started going to Bible study, before I started allowing God to do some serious work in healing me. The relationship that she and I share is due to my mother-in-law's peacemaking efforts. And the reason she lives this way is because she has chosen to pursue the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of God says relationships can be redeemed. In fact, she is the one who to this day says to me when I tell her the challenges of my life, she says, how is God going to redeem this? If you come to my house, I have a post-it note on my refrigerator to remind me, how is God going to redeem this? She knows from experience that God can redeem broken relationships and peace can grow when we seek his wisdom. Because the truth is, God's wisdom leads to peace. God's wisdom leads to peace. But the wisdom of this world tells us very loudly and repeatedly to throw away relationships that are difficult. But that is not God's wisdom. Look at it again. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James tells us peace is sown and made. Sown and made. Two action words. Two intentional words. Peace doesn't just happen. It is sown. It is made. Sometimes it takes a decade. Sometimes maybe longer. Peace comes at a price, but peace is where good can grow. And when you sow it, it leads to a harvest. But it takes effort and time. Now, we need to be honest here. Relationships require two people. I know. I know that. I know some of you have been sowing peace in some of your relationships for a long time. The story of me and my mother-in-law is not a one-size-fits-all. I don't know how long it will take in your story. In our story, it took 10 years. Some of you haven't been sowing peace that long. Some of you have been sowing peace longer than that. 
All I know is that the process is intentional and requires making and sowing. It is a choice. We've talked a lot about wisdom. To recap, James tells us there are two types of wisdom, God's wisdom and Satan's wisdom. And one of the most fundamental questions of the Bible as it began in the Garden of Eden is who are you going to trust for wisdom? James tells us that wisdom from God leads to understanding, good conduct, meekness, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What a beautiful list. But it's not quite complete. Did you know that Jesus is actually called the wisdom from God? We see it in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. And as we just talked about, wisdom from God leads to peace. Jesus is wisdom from God. Therefore, Jesus leads to peace. Have you seen this bumper sticker? No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. That's the second half of that bumper sticker. No, Jesus. No, peace. K-N-O-W. Jesus is wisdom from God that leads to peace. And wouldn't you know it, as we enter the Christmas season, one of the names for the baby born in Bethlehem is Prince of Peace. As stunningly foretold in Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so I encourage you, choose God as your source of wisdom. And may the wisdom from God Jesus Christ, our Prince of Peace, born as a baby, may he bring you peace in your heart and in your home so good can grow this Christmas. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you're so good to us. You're so kind. Love the definition of peace is where good can grow. And I believe there are women in this room, people in this room who desire for good to grow. I ask you to give them courage, give them strength, give them perseverance to persevere in making peace, in sowing peace. May they be encouraged today to keep going. Thank you for the Bible, this Bible study, the river where we join together, jumping in into your word, taking away pieces that are meaningful to us, applying them to our lives, That's where the change occurs, is when the application occurs. 
So may it be so this week. May each woman here take something away that draws them closer to you, our Prince of Peace. And always, God, may we be quick to give you praise for every good thing. We love you, Lord. Amen.